Welcome to this episode of the Revolution and Ideology podcast. We are continuing our two-part series on Taoism and anarchism. So if you haven't listened to the first uh, one of these two, I suggest you go back and do this. It's not entirely crucial to understanding the sort of series, but I suggest that you do that. Uh, and if you haven't listened to the first one, I'll just reiterate. This actually came to us because one of our students, Dante, who is here, uh, he's going to be our guest again, just like he was on the first one came to us and asked, uh, started asking questions about spirituality and anarchism and Taoism. And so we decided just to do a little two-part series on that topic altogether. So this time we're going to go through some chapters of the Tao. We're going to talk about a book that each of us read about Taoism and anarchism. And then we're going to end the episode with a conversation on whether or not there's any role for spirituality uh, within anarchism. So I'm here. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. I'm Dante. All right, so let's get straight into it. Uh, what's the first chapter we're going to be discussing? Uh, so the first chapter I just want to touch on, because I think it's going to be like a, a theme, and a lot of this is uh, chapter seven. Okay. Um, and just like last time, you're going to hear us shuffling our papers a lot to try to find these chapters, and Jared's scrolling because he's reading online. Um, though, if you listen to the first one, you know that we had three different translations, so we were constantly trying to sort of reconcile what each of them were saying. Uh, for this episode, we switched. To, we're all in the same translation now, so hopefully that might simplify some things a little bit. All right, so you want to read us chapter 7? Yeah. When we say version, we're talking about the, the Tao Te Ching itself, not not any other text. So when we're talking yeah. about chapters, we're talking about the Tao itself at this point before we switch to other sources that are more modern and, and incorporate anarchism. So if you're following along at home, that's what we're looking at. Yeah, we're looking at the Tao right now, the Tao itself. All right. All right, so chapter 7 is... So I'm just reading it and then we can just talk about like why I feel like this is an important chapter for the whole like this whole podcast series is uh, so it's heaven is everlasting and earth is enduring. The reason that they are everlasting is because they do not exist for themselves. Hence, they are long lived. Thus, although the saint puts himself last, finds himself in the lead, although he is not self-centered, finds himself accomplished. It is because he is not focused on self-interest, and hence he can fulfill his true nature. Okay, I think this, I think this will do a lot for us later, probably when we have a conversation about individualist versus socialist anarchism, which the book that we'll talk about later talks about a little bit. What else do you have on this one? Right. So with just with this this one specifically, I just I, I want to touch on this one specifically because I think this shows that like. Uh, everything, the, the, uh, the heavens, the earth, humans, everything that the Tao flows through and interacts with is all one and not one person or one thing is, uh, necessarily important, more important than the next. They all work together in like a cohesive, like collective. So I feel like it's, it's really interesting to put that because it, it ties in with like the spirituality of, uh, Taoism and the, uh, the collectivist like elements of anarchism. So I feel like this one was really kind of interesting to touch on first. Good. I like that. Jared, do you have anything on that one? No, I think that was, yeah, that was well explained. I mean, cool. yeah, I, yeah. What's next? So, uh, next I wanted to go to, uh, I'm sorry. 26. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> okay. I'll read that one while you're shuffling. Um, the heavy is the fundamental of the light. Tranquility is the master of agitation. Therefore, the saint always conducts himself with the essence of the Tao, 
and never departs from it. Although he is surrounded by the splendor of wealth, he remains to live a simple and ordinary life. How can a ruler govern a nation without recklessness if he indulges in power and desire? He who acts recklessly shall lose the essence of the Tao. He who is agitated with lust and desires shall lose his true nature. Okay, so this clearly relates to anarchism. At least the one sentence which I have highlighted is, How can a ruler govern a nation without recklessness if he indulges in power and desire? We're talking about governing a nation, a ruler, etc., which I think is good. And the argument here is sort of, a, no one can govern a nation in a way that isn't reckless if they are indulging in power and desire, right? I mean, that's that's what it says. Yeah, and that's that's literally kind of the same thing that you said. What I put in my like, side notes was the exact same thing. Is like, you, you can't expect to like rule and have this power and desire for power over people um, because it's, it's reckless. Like it's going to lead to uh, like just you being selfish and being uh, not for the people. I feel like not for the people that you're quote unquote supposed to govern. So, but any sort of ruler or governorship is antithetical to anarchism to begin with. Yeah, that so was going to be my next point. So yeah. this is kind of like a misnomer. Is this saying is chapter 26 in the Tao here arguing that these are the natural power and desire are the natural byproducts of rulership to begin with and thus not in tune with the Tao? Or is the Tao, at least in this specific chapter, arguing that, and if you all remember from our last episode where I actually did the history of when the actual Tao Te Ching was, was actually produced, was it to just create a more uh, uh, form of just rule itself? And then the Tao would be considered non-anarchist because it would still argue for rulership. So I guess I didn't clearly state that. Like, is this saying merely seeking to create a form of just rule, a la like a Confucius... Um, uh, or a Shunzi at the time, or is it actually arguing that there is no such thing as a just rule because its natural byproducts are power and desire? Yeah, so that's one of the key debates and one of the points that the author we're going to talk about uh, after we finish reading through these chapters brings up. It's one of the critiques is exactly that. Are they arguing, it, does the Tao argue for a deconstruction of the state or is it arguing for a more just rule of the state? That's a clap, but yeah, that's the debate. Yeah. I mean, what are you thinking? I mean, based yeah. on this one, it, it, it looks like it's <laughs> leaning more towards just rule, which is obviously a little bit disappointing. I, I don't know that it you know, changes my opinion on the Tao itself, but as far as making the Tao its connection to, to anarchism, this one, I don't know. It's a little bit – it's – uh. It's not, it's not as simple as some of the other ones that are more focused on, like, again, like the individual and the individual essence leading to larger societal, um, understanding of communalism, like you were talking about in the last one on chapter seven that we just read. This one, it's a little bit unclear because, again, we're using specific words here. And again, the translation from, from, from ancient Chinese to, to English is always going to be a little shaky at best, but whatever. Nation, ruler, power, desire, like, these are things that are, are clearly, products of state right so right and i would argue to just i think it is you need to interpret the words more than just read them outright mm -hmm. for what they mean a little bit so what what i'm what when i read this what i'm thinking is is they're not necessarily like whoever wrote this uh Lao Tzu, supposedly right uh it's not saying that we need to deconstruct government. I think it's talking to everybody. Like if everybody realized that um, 
if we desire to seek power, we're, you're going to rule recklessly. Okay. And I feel like it, it's just a, a, a public service announcement to be like, hey, everybody, let's not lead like this, <laughs> right? Let, let, let's not lead like this. Let's not let our desires to for power guide us. So to, merely wanting power is going to lead to recklessness, and exactly. then it, it kind of de delegitimizes any form of rule. Exactly. All right, I like that. Uh, yeah, I like that a lot too. I like that. I do want to say, like we talked about, I think at the end of the last episode that. Oftentimes, the Tao reveals more about the people interpreting it than it does about itself. And I do think it's funny that the three of us with, at the very least, anarchist tendencies, like who knows what we're going to pull out of this text, right? <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, I like I love what Dante just said. I think that's good yeah. that it's like instead of focusing on the ruling and the governing of the nation in this sentence, it's focusing on the indulging in the power and desire and how if anyone indulges in the seeking of power and desire for the purpose of power and desire, they will be acting recklessly. And if they rule, will clearly be ruling recklessly as well. Kind I like that a lot. Reminiscent of the uh, Four Noble Truths from a different spirituality in that yeah, regard. Yeah, for sure. I like that. All right, what's next? Uh, chapter 30. I'm, I'm just read this one real quick because mm-hmm. I, got, I got a little something I kind of want to ask everybody about. Is uh, So, one who assists the ruler with the principle of Tao, will not use the force of arms to conquer the world. For such affairs will result in cause and effect. Whenever the armies touch the land, it is turned into a wasteland of thorns and brambles. After a war is fought, bad years are sure to follow. Therefore, one who follows the true nature will understand the principle of cause and effect and shall not rely upon the strength of force. By knowing the effect, thus one will not brag. By knowing the effect, thus one will not boast. By knowing the effect, thus one will not become uh, arrogant. By knowing the effect, although one has no choice, one still abides by the principle of cause and effect and does not resolve into force. When things reach their prime, they start to age and decline. This is the life that is diminishing and shall not reach the ultimate essence. So <clears throat> with this one, the, the main part I wanted to touch on was like the beginning part for the most part is like uh, cause and effect. Right. And I feel like when we talk about like uh, spirituality and what's ethical and stuff like that, um, something that I've been looking up in doing some of the, the research about this is uh, this thing called consequentialism. And it's, it's pretty much the, uh, uh, to just sum it up, like very plainly is really, uh, a morality, a morality based ethic based on like your actions also has consequences and the, your actions should be judged based off of the consequences that they might create. So, um, if, if a person is like ruling or assisting in like, help helping governing like a land or something like that uh they should do it with the Tao because the Tao works like we've read in chapter seven to invite everybody and to work with everybody so if your consequent if the consequence of your action is not for the benefit of everybody then it's a shit like thing to do i feel like and like i don't really know how to poetically put that as they probably <laughs> did it but I just feel like if you think about the consequences of your actions before you do it, you come to a better result in the end. I just want to know how y'all feel about that. How y'all feel about just about this in in general. Yeah. 
So this example, again, the framing in the in the Warring States period, this is like the historical context, and we can kind of see at this point in time that that period lasts for centuries. And we, if you are seeking to find a solution to society's ills, constant warfare, you're going to look at this and you're going to argue that the leaders, in this case of these seven warring states, are not rightly guided or are not performing their 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 role as just rulers because they are not looking at the you just use the term consequentialism the dao here is using cause and effect clearly they're not learning from their actions and that they should be deemed or judged in this case based on those actions which is super interesting maybe not even judged it's not in here i'm probably adding my own words because the dao doesn't necessarily judge that would be very undoubted judge or deem or name but it is basically essentially saying like these problems are going to perpetuate themselves because they are not looking at the very, very obvious cause and effect of this constant conflict. Is the constant conflict, though, tied to this idea of a state or in this case, like these warring states? That's what the Tao is not super clear on here. One could say this is merely like, oh, we can do the state better, not necessarily saying live without the state. And that's it's the second one in a row to kind of do that. So I don't know if I'm seeing the full-blown connection to anarchism. What do you think? So this actually connects, for me, a lot to the concept of prefiguration. And so the highlight I have here is, after a war is fought, bad years are sure to follow. Therefore, one who follows the true nature will understand the principle of cause and effect and shall not rope rely upon the strength of force. So within the anarchist context, the concept of prefiguration, right, that that type of anarchist would argue that we can't possibly create a peaceful anarchist future through violence, right? So that's how I make those connections. The Tao itself isn't saying that, but if I'm looking for connections to anarchism in the Tao, that's something that I pulled out and highlighted that I think applies for sure. Right. And so I think that that's an interesting point that you bring up is like, is like violence like justified you know what i mean like mm-hmm. is it like through if we're reading the Tao, does the Tao kind of justify violence in some ways and i would argue that it probably it it, it does i feel like not like in this some, one though yeah not in here for no sure. not in this chapter but yeah. in the the text as a whole i feel like there's some mm-hmm. chapters that it kind of might advocate for it interesting yeah yeah, I don't know that I've read those. I mean, it might, I guess, depending on how we interpret them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right, what's next? Um, 31, I think? Yeah, 31 is a long one. All right, I'll read it, but yeah, it's pretty long. Um, weapons of war are instruments of disaster. They are rejected by all beings. Thus, a person of Tao will not dwell upon them. According to the ancient customs of yin and yang, a man... Of virtue values the left, which is represented by yang, and a man of war values the right, which is represented by ying. Weapons are instruments of evil and are not valued by a man of virtue. They are used only as the last resort to, a, to attain peace when all else has failed. If their use is necessary, it is best to employ with calmness and tranquility. Even if it means victory, it is not something pleasant. Those who rejoice over victory enjoy killing. He who delights in killing will not be favored by the people and shall not bring harmony to the world. It is the ancient custom to favor happy events to the left as represented by yang, while on sad occasions it is favored to the right as represented by ying. When this right is applied to the army, the lieutenant general takes the pass of the left, and the commander-in-chief takes the, pla- the place of the right. Sorry, place. 
This indicates that war is treated as if it is a funeral service, for many lives had been killed and hence should be mourned with sorrow. Therefore, although a victory was won, it is treated like a funeral rite. So I think right off the bat, this speaks a lot to the use of violence. It says specifically, if their use is necessary, it is best to employ with calmness and tranquility. So to Dante's point, even though this chapter in general, I think, kind of rejects the use of violence and arms, it does say if it is necessary. So clearly it admits at least there's a, there is some time when violence would be necessary. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and I would interpret this one as well as being like sometimes violence is necessary. However, because it is, I feel like the Dao is like full of a lot of contradictions. Mm-hmm. However, if you use it, you should not like revel in it. You should not be happy to have done that because you know that like you're killing somebody who, you know, it's just like you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it, it, it's, it's not saying that, like, I'm better than you. It's saying, like, oh, you did some messed up stuff. And, or or whatever. Like, whoever, you know, whatever the violence is for it, like, I, I think it's, it's pretty much saying, like, you shouldn't be super happy about killing somebody or doing violence. And if you do, you need to do it with, a, like, a ethical... And it, it, that even sounds kind of contradictory. It's like ethical killing or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it's weird. No, I, I agree. That's exactly what it's saying. Right? But it's but it's synthesis. But it ties back to like this idea of anarchist philosophy and and notions of state and governance and things along those lines. Is it's basically essentially if you were to try and interpret this as an anarchist, you would argue that even if the Tao admits that sometimes you need to engage in war or killing or violence and use these weapons of evil or instruments of evil to use this 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 terminology that that you just read. Those are all just that if you need to use those things, you're in the state. And so you, if you want to read between the lines, you would argue that any function of state is going to necessarily require the use of these instruments. So that's what states require, right? Commander-in-chief and lieutenant general. These are the terms we see here. Those are functionalities within a state-based military. And if you were an anarchist and trying to read between the lines, you would argue that's the, a natural byproduct of the state is necessary use of instruments of evil. Even if the Tao reveals this. So if you want to live without necessarily having to use instruments of evil, you would want to live without the state. There's no way to morally or ethically kill. What it does say is like you should – if you do have to and it happens to be a product of the state, you should treat it like a funeral rite that even when you win, you should still mourn the loss of the dead, whatever side they're on. Clearly, that's not something that any modern state does. We celebrate it. We put it in video games. We put it in films and stuff. Yes, United States or Europe or whatever. Any of these societies that have existed since this time period, they do the opposite. They celebrate their killing. They celebrate their war. Uh, I'm going to quote a completely different philosopher from the 18th century. Jonathan Swift calls soldiers yahoos who are trained to kill as many of their own species as they possibly can who have never personally wronged them. And that's why a yahoo is the most celebrated of all ya- – or a soldier is the most celebrated of all yahoos. Um, there is no more clear definition of what a state, so the antithesis to anarchy, looks like than these Western civilizations that have this – robust celebration of conflict and warfare and violence and and that's who we are so the anarchist would read between the lines here and say hey if you want to incorporate some Taoism, the Tao warns us that that the natural byproduct of state is going to be violence and i think back to, violence that will be celebrated yeah back to dante's point there's no like manifestation of anarchism that supports violence for violence sake 
right? And a celebration of violence and et cetera. Like pacifist anarchists are against violence altogether. The anarchists that do support violence toward the anarchist ends begrudgingly admit that they need to do so to deconstruct the state and achieve anarchism. No one is celebrating the violence or doing the violence because they want to do the violence, I right. think. Right. Yeah. At least in theory. Yeah. And I think of, I think of that when I think of like certain movements like uh, where people like do counter protest and it kind of get a little violent and stuff like that. It's like or just like literally fighting for agency against the state based off of like how they oppress them through violent means. It's like, how do you do that? Can you do that peacefully? I don't, I don't like and does that work all the time if you do it in a peaceful manner? And I will argue that in that instance, it doesn't. And I feel like this is where it kind of says like violence is necessary, but we would like to work towards something where we don't need to employ yeah. this violence. But as the devil's advocate, then using what he said in the last chapter regarding prefiguration, you're dooming yourself to recreation of a state true. by engaging in this violence. Mm -hmm. That's true. I mean, this is one of the problems I have, one of the inherent yeah. contradictions of anarchism, at least some threads, is if you use violence to deconstruct a state and you're successful, then the very instant that that state is deconstructed, you then become the state. Because if we lose, use Weber's definition of the state being the institution that claims a monopoly on violence, if you've used violence to defeat the state, then you yourself now have a monopoly on violence and you are the state, right? And there's no escaping that. If we're going to stick to that definition. Okay, what's the next chapter? 56. All right. The wise who does not speak. He who speaks is not wise. Keep silent and close, close one's mouth. Keep guard on one's sensory organs. Round off one's edges. Untie the entangled. Harmonize with the glory. Mix with the lowliness. This is called the mystic unity. Because the wise is uh, unified with all and has no distinction. Thus, one cannot get close to him, nor can one keep far away from him. One cannot benefit him, nor can one harm him. One cannot honor him, nor can one disgrace him. Therefore, he is honored by the whole world. I just want to say I love the keep guard on one's sensory organs, because in my mind, that's the Tao's way of saying keep your dick in your pants but so that's just what I thought when I first read that sentence I I'm was, thinking it's like your eyes and your ears I know, and stuff and your but, nose I know it is but I like laughed to myself when sure, I read that yeah. it's, a, <laughs> it's your little baby carrot All right, yeah. um, I think this is one is, is really interesting uh, because I feel like it's it's, it's, it's pretty much saying in, in, my, in my mind that like we should listen to people like we, if you don't listen to people how do you know what people really need and they're saying like a wise man does not speak because in order to be wise you have to be able to listen to what's going on uh with the people around you and stuff like that and not even the people the land how you, we use it and stuff like that and we have to be able to listen to it in a a way that is kind of mystic in a way, especially when we're like, if you want to listen to the land in, in that respect. So I feel like it, it's saying that like, we need to like, shut up sometimes, <laughs> just yeah. shut up and listen to people and listen to what's going on. And then we can figure out how to fix it or how to, you know, reconcile what we, what, what we have done or something like that. Yeah. I fully agree with that. Yeah. I mean, every state is constructed by, you know, the biggest asshole, right? Like, <laughs> and, and there's no such thing. Like, I mean, we can go from like the Roman empire under Caesar Augustus to 
draconian Athens to the modern day United States having like obviously the loudest, uh, most uh, obscene people now, of course, becoming our our various political and corporate and even social leaders. Like those are the people that, that should absolutely not be the ones you're following. And if those are the people you end up following, then you found yourself in a state, which is again, antithetical to anarchism to begin with. Um, it reminds me of the, uh, the Zapatismo ideal of, especially when it comes to in, uh, Subcomandante Marcos and his idea that he actually leads by following. In this case, he's talking about following the indigenous people that are kind of, you know, explaining things to him. But it's also kind of maybe contradictory because he wrote ad nauseum. So it's kind of weird that we find ourselves like in this like area. But it's not. I mean, it is very Taoist of a saying, but it's also a saying you see in a lot of other societies that are basically challenging power structures, that it is only like through silence that we'll actually understand what we're supposed to be. Like those that that, that talk the most are usually with the, the ones with the least to say. Right. Yeah. No, I like that. All right. 57, is that next? Uh, yes. Okay, I'll read it. Govern a nation with the right principle. Fight a battle with the tactics of surprise. Rule over the world with peace and natural effort. How do I know that this is so? By the following. The more prohibitions that are imposed on people, the poorer the people become. The more sharp weapons the people possess, the greater is the chaos in the country. The more clever and crafty the people become, the more unusual affairs occur. The more laws and regulations that exist, the more thieves and brigands appear. Hence the saint declares, I act effortlessly with the way of the Tao. Thus people transform themselves naturally. I love tranquility and peace. Thus people naturally follow the right way. I do not exhaust people with labor. Thus people naturally are wealthy. I have no personal desires. Thus people naturally are innocent and simple. That's as anarchist as you can get. That, yeah. one, hit, that, one, that one hits it. Like, like that one hits it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it just it basically says everything that we create, like all these more and more like various progressions or advances or intellectual whatever, like even laws here, the more laws and regulations that exist, the more thieves and brigands appear. So every time we create something new, what we're actually doing is also imposing ourselves upon others or the natural world. And again, we could argue that this is a cautionary tale over too much of a state or maybe even a state as all. In this case, it says govern a nation. I don't like the word govern there, but I bet if we really looked at various different translations, it might even be a different word. Um, Because again, governorship would go against the idea of anarchism. But in this case, it's basically saying govern by not governing. Mm -hmm. So I really like that. Yep. Yeah, I think this one, like you said, is good evidence of a connection between anarchism and Taoism for sure. And I, I think it's just like the literally the most overt one. If not, no, yeah, yeah definitely. The most mm-hmm. overt one. Um, let me see. I wanted to go to uh, 60, but um, but I feel like that kind of goes into more of like the, like what I want to talk to about the book. Okay. And just like a, a discussion about like uh, just how, um, after that quote, how we can like synthesize Taoism and anarchism and like kind of create like some type of like spiritual anarchism type of uh, relationship. So let's discuss the book or at least your questions that you want to ask about the book. And just for our listeners, we'll link this in the show notes. But the book is titled Taoism and Anarchism Critiques of State Autonomy in Ancient and Modern China by John A. Rapp. Uh, this was published, it looks like in 2012, I think. Uh, so we specifically read for this. I think it was just the preface and the introduction. Um, yeah. 
Uh, okay, so we're not going to go over the book or like the conclusions or anything in there. Let's just talk about your questions that you had and we, yeah. we'll just discuss it. So uh, one thing in the book that uh, it, it talked about a lot of critiques on like how um, Taoist philosophy probably doesn't like perfectly fit into mm-hmm. like anarchist philosophy. And like I just wanted to, it was some questions that I just had that I think would be interesting to like kind of talk about. And it was one of them where it was uh, talking about like how um, within anarchism we talk about like no gods, no masters, that that type of thing, right? And the Tao in, essentially is like this metaphysical entity, is what the the book specifically said. It's like this metaphysical entity. So like, do y'all think that the Tao is like an entity, or is it just like a is it a philosophy, just like anarchism? Like, how how do you how are we gonna reconcile? Like, because we know how we say like the like the uh, Tao flows through all of us, and that's like this like metaphysical. Um, yeah, you know so what I mean. The Taoists would say it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like my interpretation doesn't matter. Like it's my interpretation. If I right. want to give the Tao some sort of mes- metaphysical essence that flows through all of us, some sort of inherent or innate Im- uh, morality. Um, an ethical approach to things um, from a ideological standpoint and then also it, all of its power or prowess in like the material world, then then that's fine. And if uh, Nick, on the other hand, um, who might be less inclined spiritually, just wants to say this is a philosophy that some would argue is just inherent, natural to us because of our – I don't know. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he's being my straw man right now. Because of some sort of biological or evolutionary process, that's fine too. And the Taoist would say both can be correct. Now, it, it doesn't matter. So if you want to attach that spirituality to it, some sort of, again – bigger than us um force or energy or aura so be it but it doesn't have to be that okay okay that's interesting yep yeah right yeah more. um also like and like i you know i think that like a lot of times we hear like taoist and um we think a lot of people attribute it to like being pacifist like in nature because of like they call that like action without action is I think one of the, mm-hmm. the yeah. things in it and it's like is it really pacifist because how, how we literally just and that interpretation is very like that's I think that's loose interpretation of like what violence means mm-hmm. um, but like so do you think that to call somebody a Taoist anarchist would you say that they are a the Tao is a pacifist thing. And do you think that um, anarchism is necessarily a violent philosophy? Ooh, those are two big questions. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, the Taoist answer would be every interpretation is correct and no interpretations are correct. Right. So if you read the Tao and in there you read justification for violence, that says something about you and your... Uh, you know, the way that you're interpreting says more about you than it does, I think, the Tao. Clearly, it's not like, it's not like a revolutionary violent manifesto. Like, we all probably can agree to, to that, but it's not, it's also not necessarily fully pacifist nor necessarily fully violent. So I think it's open to interpretation, which j- the entire thing is, not just its position on violence. You know what I mean? So it's living intentionally, unintentionally. This is the way I kind of frame the Tao sometimes. You are intentionally living unintentionally. 
how that compares, contrasts, or conflicts with anarchism is in the eye of the beholder. Depends, I suppose, on what type of anarchist you are and all the uh, embarrassingly small and minute differences between all of the various anarchist schools of thought. Hopefully I'm offending some of you. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, that all these like little minor deviations are, are really just minor deviations and, you know, whatever. But that's a whole other, you know, syndicalism versus communalism and so on and so forth. But regardless... The one distinction I could say there is if you want, if you're having a if you don't want to reconcile these two, you would argue that the anarchist, regardless of who they are, like again, an, an individualist, a communalist, a syndicalist, whatever other green anarchist, is they you could say that they are living intentionally, intentionally, not intentionally, unintentionally. Does that make sense? Then the anarchist, at least in their own mind, is intentionally making these choices as a and they don't even have to be violent. That's not, that's not even the point. It could be something as simple as an exit strategy from society, creating a commune. But they are intentionally doing those things as an affront in one way or another to the idea of state. Whether that is picking up a baseball bat and bashing in some windows at a bank or whether that is going off into the mountains to form your own hippie commune. Those are intentional acts that are not unintentional the way the Tao would say. Exactly. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Now, whether or not anarchism is inherently violent, my position is no, it doesn't have to be. The violent anarchists throughout history are the ones that have gotten the most attention, but that's just because they are committing violent acts and assassinations and it's so on. But it doesn't have to be violent. So going on that is like saying, so with that pacifist um, I uh, look in at anarchism and then like the more violent uh, look at anarchism, which one do you think like creates this revolution that anarchists typically talk about like do you think the re like a revolution can come uh spiritually like in the pacifist way or can it come in a more like violent way which one because we've like you say seen it has been done violently in the past but do you think it can be done in like a more spiritual way or a like, pacifist type of so do you mean a social revolution or an individual revolution? A social revolution. So my personal opinion is that a social revolution will not happen nonviolently. Okay. I, I'm not, well, clearly, like, this is all open for debate. I'm not, like, 100% absolutely not. It would never happen. But I think that if we're talking about a modern revolution that is going to take down capitalism, it's going to take more than all of just looking inwardly. Yeah. I do think, though, that that's a crucial part of it. I think it has to be both is my answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's the, yeah. I mean, once the revolution becomes violent in a collective manner, it's no longer a revolution. Oh, okay. That would be the Taoist answer. To yeah. That. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's no longer a revolution. And he just gave us the Weber quote. You now have the monopoly on violence and you are in a new state. So I, I'm not saying I would don't advocate for one or the other. I think actually, if you're going to make any change, you got it all, 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 options have to be on the table and more importantly i would also never be the one to look at an oppressed people anywhere and say you do not have the right to fight back that is not mm -hmm. my place right. if you need to fight back fight back by all means mm -hmm. I'm just or you don't have the right to be passive whatever yeah, you, you've right. got to do what you got to do like yeah. i mean one of our favorite examples that we you know just assigning class are like the mau mau rebellion like they had to go violent to get rid of the british the british were awful in kenya and the mau mau had to all all bets off to try and liberate themselves from British colonial rule. And I'm a 100% supporter in everything they did. It's not my place to judge. However, 
the Taoist would then say, be careful what you sow, because then, like, what have you actually created? And then you can look at maybe many, many modern nation states that revolted violently and then reproduced that violence in their society. The United States is an excellent example. Violent revolution leads to a violent society. What I'm saying here is I, I don't know, as a true Taoist, there is a right answer. Right. And the Taoist would say there isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. And the one, the reason why I would agree with that for actually both of y'all is because like, um, it's this thing that I'm not really like, uh, sure, too sure about. I've read some stuff about it. It's called a uh, rhizomatic thinking or rhizomatic thinking mm -hmm. or something like that. And, uh, it talks about like, there's a multiplicity of options that people can choose from. And none of those are necessarily better than the next. They're just, multiplicities of it's it's very is multiplicities of options that can be utilized and i feel like with both like with that it's not saying that a revolution has to happen passively or a revolution has to have has to happen violently but those are all up for discussion. well i mean in continuing the line of thinking of like the rhizomatic relationships of power and intersectionality of power and or foucault's like capillary concept of power i do think one of the shortcomings of anarchism is that they not all of them but most in simple terms anarchism has a very monolithic view of power that power is the state um unless we're talking about like the post anarchist or something like that um where was i going anyways to talk about rhizomatic strategies and tactics it's also probably naive of us to think that all of the various ways that power manifests itself and all the various ways that people are oppressed are all going to be deconstructed using one violent or nonviolent means or social or individual means or something like that. That's like I said is incredibly naive. Some of them will be deconstructed passively and some of them will be deconstructed violently and so on. It's sort of like the in the moment what is necessary to make real change and to stop exploitation and oppression, which is like what Jared said. No one from the outside of any of these oppressed groups has any right to judge right. what means they've chosen in the moment. You know what I mean? Like right. it makes no sense, but we do it all the time. At least people do it all the time. I don't know if we do it all the time, but uh, it blows my mind whenever there's a protest or like people still look back to I civil rights. Myth is America. I judge the hell out of those people. No, yeah, I mean like now, right? Yeah. Like people that look back on civil rights and like they had no right to be violent and like to be in the streets. And you're like, who the fuck are you to say in 2019, white dude, what they had a right to do or not 60 <laughs> years ago? Like, you know what I mean? Like it just makes no sense. Yeah. 2019 white dude is the worst. <laughs> totally. And I'm one of them. <laughs> Um, another one that popped in the book, another critique of this Taoist anarchist like philosophy is, uh, that, um, it's very individualistic and like how the Tao promotes, um, more like this individualistic approach to, um, live your life pretty much and just like screw everybody else. And like a lot of people attribute this to like, um, the egoists, Mm -hmm. The egoist anarchism yep. who Matt or Max Max Sterner, yeah. Sterner. In yeah. fact, the author of that book even mentions him specifically. Yeah, and the ego yeah. in its own, his book and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and like, I feel like, and just real quick to um, talk about, like, I was doing some study on my biological anthropology class and they talked about like the tragedy of commons. Mm -hmm. And what that pretty much is, is that like um, one person just is doing something only beneficial 
beneficial to themselves and not to the group as a whole. So not, they're not really being altruistic or whatever. Um, so that creates the tragedy commons where then society cannot continue to like thrive or whatever. So um, do you, do y'all think that like to tie Taoism with anarchism, would that create more of this like tragedy of the commons or like this individualistic um, idea of who you are and how you navigate throughout the world? I mean, it's, it's a concept that we talked about in the previous episode about, subjectivist individual like internal revolution versus social revolution and i think we all agree probably that both are necessary like you and at the same time which is super important and there are times when i need to look inwardly and i need to be out socially and like for us to expect that it's going to be one or the other at any given time is nonsense it's going to be both at all the time and sometimes one or the other and we have to be open to that I don't know if there's any alternative to that whatsoever. And I would argue personally that the Tao is more of an internal subjectivist type revolution, which is totally fine. Um, you guys might, people might disagree with that, which I think the author of the book does, and that's fine. Um, what was the other question? Taoism um, and... Yeah, like... Oh, Tragedy of the Commons. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, first off, Tragedy of the Commons is complete bullshit. Um <laughs> I, I don't know why this theory has lasted so long, especially in economics and stuff. I just like six months ago, had there was this long thread on Reddit about this because someone's econ professor was teaching them this and they were like, this can't be correct. Anyways, tragedy of the commons is if there are things that are shared in common, no one will take care of them because they're all looking out for themselves and they don't want to invest the time. And in, it's complete nonsense because in fact, <laughs> then I remember the argument on Reddit, this person's economics professor told them the way to Cure climate change is to privatize the oceans and all of the climate because then the companies will have a vested interest in saving them. And I, like my head almost exploded fucking <laughs> reading this on the internet. But anyways, the tragedy of the commons is nonsense. And we have examples throughout history. We don't even have to go back that far. We can look before the enclosure acts in England as an example. The commons were fully taken care of because they benefited everyone. Everyone was grazing their animals there. Everyone was going like, so it's a et super convenient framework for this whole lie of the tragedy of the commons. Like you only look at it like within a certain lens, but if you look at it like across history, the more things have become privatized, the worse the environment has gone. Exactly, it's that simple, right? It, it it's it's that simple. We've gone to more and more individual ownership, privatization, dating back to the birth of civilization during the quote-unquote Neolithic revolution all the way to today, and one need look no further than like any possible scientific study from a number of disciplines, from geologists to biologists to physicists, and all of them have seen essentially what we would call the living world, the natural world, has gotten worse. So the tragedy of the commons is, it's, it's a complete joke. It's it's laughable at best, and if you're an econ teacher listening to this, which none are, but you're you're embarrassing yourselves at this point. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because, like, I like I feel like that is just the main like like I, look chapter thirty. I think in in the Tao kind of chapter thirty and uh, chapter seven talks about that. Like chapter seven literally talked about like how. As long as all of us are working together in harmony, like there, there can be no wrong. So for, I feel like for the author, which is good that they brought it up though, but yeah, the Tao doesn't say yeah. everything must be privatized for right. us to like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's just a trash argument that people like to use just to keep The tragedy it. of the commons is a tragedy. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It's not, it's ridiculous. It's 
I mean, it's a good thought experiment, but it's not. There's historical, real life examples. It's nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. What examples that these types of people uh, usually cling to are like super like small examples within a certain temporal context that evidence them. Yes, if you took a collection of 50 modern Americans with our ideological values, right, our need for individualism and our myopic lenses and a celebration of me, 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 and tried to get us to share a certain space over a certain amount of time, a short amount of time specifically, before we have the opportunity to change or socialize ourselves or work things out, then yes, it is going to be awful. You put us all in a reality TV show in a house, it's going to end up shit. That's the way it's going to work. But that that's not that's not a genuine way to prove the point of the tragedy of the commons because you would need to do it over a longer period of time. Just like how – just like, again, the thousands of years that it took us to get to this point of being awful, you – I don't even know if it would take thousands of years to get us to be unawful, but it certainly would be a much better way to measure what would happen to this common area than it is to, again, these little experiments that they're performing or little observations or examples. They It's it, – well, plus the tragedy of the commons argument rests on there's some inherent human nature that makes us not care for which is bullshit. So, and that's where the pseudo other religious mumbo jumbo gets in of original sin and how that's built into the Western ethos that we are inherently bad and that we have some sort of great white hope or great white leader is going to help fix us uh, in some way. Like that's also built into the ethos. That's where this other like again this ideology comes in. I mean, that's what you're selling, right? That's what you're marketing. When you are marketing your religion, you're like. Something's wrong with you, and I have the 12-step plan to fix you. In this case, it's JC, and he's coming on a giant flying dinosaur <laughs> with blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent, but no, it's the but same idea. I, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the same idea. Like, you're born bad. I will fix you if you follow my way of doing things, Right. whether that is Christianity or capitalism or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I just think it's funny because I was just reading some posts about, like, the irony of like people looking to the Bible to justify white supremacy. And this person was like, they don't understand. There's literally no white people in the Bible. <laughs> like that's not a thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just, I, I thought that was the, one of the main things that just, just boggled my mind about that critique. Cause I'm like, how, how can you really, anyway, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, and this is my last question, which is, but, um, so in the, also in the book, they talked about how, um, Taoism is like a reactionary, uh, philosophy that was brought about, like Jared said in the, the last, uh, episode about, uh, with the warring, the warring state period and how, um, this reactionary, like tendency to what was going on at the time create like this nihilistic view of the world which the Tao Te Ching is supposed to be like this nihilist doctrine that says like nothing matters so like why do anything and just don't do nothing you know what I mean so like what do y'all feel about that take like do you feel like do you feel like this is taking like the Tao Te Ching is taking a uh a nihilist perspective I will argue yes and no in some instances because it's very Taoist of you yeah <laughs> <laughs> I would say yes and no because um I feel like there's levels or just different areas of nihilism. It's like existential nihilism, political nihilism, uh, ethical nihilism, and epistem- 
I can't pronounce. Let me see. Epistemological. Epistemological <laughs> nihilism. And like, I would argue that like, if you tie, um, Taoism with anarchism, that's more like political and ethical, um, nihilism. But anyway, I, I just want to see what y'all feel about that. Like, do you think it's a, Nick loves talking about nihilism, right? Yeah, now. we're going to do an episode on it soon. It's his, it's for his, real, yeah. It's his hot button, so I'm going to let him rock this for a minute. So the first thing you said was like, which I read in the book, was that this critique that Taoism is reactionary based on the time when its origin during the Warring States period, etc. I always kind of think it's funny when we, this critique of like, well, that ideology is just reactionary. Because if you take the materialist mindset... Every ideology yeah. is reactionary. Christianity is reactionary yeah. to corrupt rabbis and Roman rule. Anarchism is reactionary to an oppressive state, right? right? Like right. communism is reactionary to capitalism. Like right. I mean, that's how it works, right? So I don't, I don't even view that as a critique. Like to me, as a materialist, I suppose it just is, right? I mean, that's the only thing. Ways of thinking are born out of material circumstances. So yes, in that way, it's reactionary. Right. Now, this is a different, I think, interpretation. Fire was reactionary. Yeah. Like, I want warm food. <laughs> right. And I'm going to bang yeah. these rocks together. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, this is a different, like, my interpretation of reactionary versus, like, the revolutionary versus reactionary versus reform type co- common uses of reactionary. But... I don't know why the reactionary thing is such a critique. I think it's re- kind of ridiculous, at least in this context of like Taoism being re- reactionary to the state, the warring states period. Clearly it is. Right. I don't even think that's debatable, nor should it be controversial, which the author kind of claims that this is a hugely controversial claim. And I'm like, why? <laughs> it's yeah, totally is. Um, talking about is Taoism nihilist? This is interesting because from the nihilist perspective and from the Taoist perspective, the answers are probably different. The Taoist would say it is and it isn't. It can and it can't be. Do something or do nothing. Do everything or do nothing. And you know what I mean? So from they the go da- so far as to call yourself a nihilist means you're not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which actually I think I actually have in the writing that I'm doing, yeah. like the nihilism that can be named is not true nihilism. I think it works both ways. You know what I mean? Um from the nihilist perspective, is Taoism nihilist? I struggle to make that stretch because I don't know what, like you said, is it political nihilist or ethical nihilism or is it what, like, there's not enough in there for me to pick out pieces that would support it being any kinds of those types of nihilism. We could put our label on it. Like, we, I'm sure we can make an argument that Taoism is existentially nihilist if we pulled out little passages and stuff. Um, but I don't think there's enough there for me to be like, yes, the Tao is a work of existential nihilism. Like, that's, I don't think that that's, that would be a disservice and an injustice, I think, to the Tao and probably to nihilism also. Right. Yeah. Do, do y'all think that, I don't know, like, I talk to a lot of people about nihilism. And do y'all think, like, is necessarily, like, is it bad to be nihilist? Or no, not at all. And this is such a misconception of nihilism. Yeah. The most popular type of nihilism not meaning that it's the most that most people believe but the most that people know about the most because it's talked about the most is existential nihilism i think which is like life has no com- cosmic meaning so like i'm depressed and i don't want to get out of bed type nihilism or, or like right? I, I hear the, the uh the example of like i don't know if y'all ever seen uh this show called rick and morty 
Oh, yeah, but for like, sure. yeah, like Rick is probably like the yeah. biggest nihilist, <laughs> the existential nihilist. In fact, yeah. so people would always attribute nihilism to that, to him, or to like that. But idea. we have to understand that nihilism. There are all kinds of nuances in nihilism itself, right? So passive nihilism is life is meaningless, so I'm going to do nothing. Active nihilism is life is meaningless, so I'm going to do something, right? right? And then there, like you said, you listed the moral nihilism and political nihilism and ethical nihilism and so on, right? All of the different types of nihilism. So, no, nihilism is not bad. I mean, it's a way of viewing the world. We could make moral judgments where, like, if someone is a moral nihilist and then they go out and, like, molest children or murder haphazardly or something, like, would we sit here and make a moral judgment on that? For sure, probably. And is that right or wrong? Like, we would say that's totally wrong. Right. But most, almost no nihilists do that. You know what I mean? Even, like, the revolutionary nihilists are doing it. They're usually targeting, like, political leaders or something. They're not just, like, blowing up people. In fact, I just listened to a super good episode of Revolutionary Left Radio that I want to plug that in fact has one of our past students, Gabe, on it, and he talks about Seventeen In. The whole the whole episode is a history of Seventeen In, which was this radical anarchist uh, organization in Greece. And he ma- brings up a really good point that I had never framed this way: that most of like the quote unquote terrorist organizations, all of the ones on the left, are very very calculated. And do as much work as, I don't want to say all, I guess. Most of the ones on the left that we have historical examples of, and 17N is a super good example, go so far out of the way to try to prevent the law killing of innocent people. They're targeting political leaders and like law enforcement, etc. Um, Sometimes not even people. If you look at like environmentalists who are merely yeah, like exactly. taking, like you know, burning Hummers, or, or, and, or yeah, and and we frame them as so evil for for daring to set fire to a, a ski resort or to a, a couple of vehicles. In this case, like I said, Hummers. That it's just. It's, but uh, the point right. that he brought up that I had never really thought of before for some reason is if we look at modern examples of terrorism over the past few decades. It has always been the right-wing terrorists that target the innocent people, the kids in the street and their mothers going to school and the classrooms of children and the innocent people shopping at Walmart. It's always the right-wing terrorists that are, every that single are targeting time. like the individual people. It, it, it right. really is. It really is. And, and we and have to make that you know, delineation. Yeah. We have to. I mean, and there's no choice. Everything from white nationalists to, uh, yeah, I mean, you just look at like all of the data and it is always people from like, again, the extreme right that are the ones that are just indiscriminately in cases of like country music concerts and things like that, just popping people off. However, I would argue, I don't know if they, we would even claim that those people are like some type of nihilists. Like maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I think they're actually doing it for an end goal, which is white supremacy or whatever it oh, might God, be. Oh, God, no. They are not nihilists. That's the yeah. point I think you were making is that it is very rare, and I'm not here fully defending like nihilism at all, but like it's very rare that like anarchists or nihilists or these other groups are are going out of their way to – like it's very rare that they're harming people, like individuals like this when you have – but you, what you do have is a very rich history of the non-nihilist ideologies – 
committing atrocities that, well, this podcast and things like Myth, of, Myth is America have already, like, again, gone through everything from transatlantic slave trades to ethnic cleansing of aboriginal peoples in North America. Not, those were all done under non-nihilist ideologies, Christianity, Catholicism, whatever. Like, those are non-nihilist, and they have exponentially more blood on their hands than any other nihilist or anarchist philosophy. Like, and the irony is that once you accept or approach nihilism, it results in sort of this paralysis, at least in the beginning, I think, where we typically think that like, well, the nihilist just goes out and like rapes and pillages because nothing matters. But when you're actually, when you're actually a nihilist, you're confronted with the decision of like, let's say you're like a moral nihilist, right? So you're like, well, it's not right or wrong for me to kill this person. But then you're instantly also faced with the decision of like, well, why would I kill them then? Because if nothing matters, why would I kill them or not kill them? And so you're, you're instantly in this position of paralysis. So very rarely is it like, nothing matters as buck wild. Like I'm just going to do whatever. Like that almost never happens because you're instantly focused, like nothing matters. So I could either go buck wild or do nothing. So what am I going to choose? And almost never do people like, well, I'm just going to go shoot up the street. Like that almost never happens. If we go back into the actual context of this, which we've been talking about the warring states period, if you think about it, and if you want to attach any sort of nihilism to Taoism, which Nick already went through the nuances of why that might be problematic, but let's pretend you do. Why would that context matter? Well, if you look at why these states are at war, it is their non-nihilistic ideologies that are leading to constant death and destruction for centuries, legalism and Confucianism and worshiping ancestors in my territory versus your territory. And this is why it matters. And this is why I'm willing to fucking kill you. Like that, again, I don't even need to like go through every historical example. If you're listening to this podcast, you, you already know, like it is ideologies, these very, very specific ideologies that by far have caused the most problems in human history. In their name. Doesn't matter if it's a, 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 a Islam, a Christianity, a capitalism, a communism, a socialism. These very, very dogmatic, one-size-fits-all, one-truth ideologies are the ones that continue, continuously have the most blood on their hands. I also... And I don't want to steal too much thunder from the nihilism episode, I guess. But I think that it might give a little credence to Taoism being a little bit nihilist. I think we've now in modern times sort of worked out the wrinkles of nihilism and we have all of these like nihilisms with qualifiers like revolutionary nihilism and moralistic nihilism. And, but we have to understand that nihilism was born out of the opposition to the church, right? And to God. And I mean, even Nietzsche's fa- famous, right? God is dead. Um, in my opinion, nihilism doesn't even have to be as extreme as like existentialist nihilism. In my opinion, nihilism can just be going against the status quo, going against the dominant ideology. If that dominant ideology is so strong that it dominates every aspect of life, which like God did in Nietzsche's time or etc. Like revolutionary nihilism, the czarist regime did at that time. So if we're saying that Taoism can be sort of viewed as nihilistic because it's going against all of the social milieu of the warring states period, then for sure, I would say it qualifies in that aspect. Yeah. And, and that, that's why I was thinking too, is like, uh, since some, some in the, some of the chapters in the Tao talks about like, uh, how to govern. And I, I like how I think is not necessarily how people who are governing citizens should govern. I think it's just how we should govern ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's more of like a nihilistic, like, uh, like either like ethical and political ways because of like going against the current structures that were at that period. You know what I mean? Like they, they want to deconstruct those 
um, uh, those systems, uh, those social order systems in order to bring about a new one for a better future that like is not oppressive and stuff like that or mm-hmm. killing people or just in a constant state of war or whatever. So I feel like, um, in that, in that sense, a lot of the Tao kind of does align with that, which kind of aligns with anarchist, uh, thought because they want to deconstruct the current social order that is what we have today mm-hmm. which is why i feel like it, it can be it can and it can't depending on your interpretation of it yeah which is doubt that's Dallas, yeah. right it could or it yeah. couldn't be like it, yeah exactly yeah. all right so let's move on to i think how we're going to wrap this up just the final discussion on whether or not we think that there is room for any type of spirituality within anarchism which is basically the first question you came to us to us with anyways which is how we went down the path of Taoism. um so i don't know how we want to approach this do we just want to what do we think do we think that there is room for spirituality and anarchism um i would just say outright i think that that is a key element that's missing from anarchism mm-hmm. i feel like that like I get it. Like we don't, we don't like if people don't want gods or masters or anything like that. But that's not saying you you can't have a connection with one other person in a, a manner that is like helpful. I don't know. Like I feel like spirituality is more helpful to everybody than just like always being in a constant state of conflict, which I get is important to a certain degree. But like I feel like spirituality needs to permeated its way throughout anarchism and i feel like it has room and i think Taoism might have a space for anarchism and i think that anarchism is so anti-religion and like rightfully so that's a fundamental key part of anarchism but i think we don't have enough nuanced conversations in the anarchist space about the difference between spirituality and religion yeah because i I think spirituality gets bucket bucketed with religion but probably unfairly so yeah religion perverted what spirit what spiritual the spiritualists there either cue like the retrograde jokes everyone makes about people that say i'm spiritual not religious but like Mm -hmm. like that's now a meme and it's it's fine and that's great but like it's it can also be a legitimate thing right Mm -hmm. like Religion is a man-made construct. Every religion is no God in that this is me as a historian now speaking. No, there is no evidence, no historical evidence of Lord Krishna or Zeus or God or Allah or Yahweh or Amaterasu or name your deity coming down, building a church or a temple or a synagogue or a mosque or, and then like laying out like the law. There's no historical evidence of any of this religion in every con in every way, shape and form are man-made constructs. That does not mean that the spirituality feeling something more than just like whatever it is, that that can still be a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's where anarchists have the opportunity to separate themselves from the two. There can't be a man-made religion attachment to anarchism. You can't have and, – and this might offend one or two listeners, probably not that many. But no, you can't have a dogmatic religious anarchist attached to one of the dominant religions in the world right now because they are also attached to state. That, that that makes no sense. In fact, before there was state, there was religion. State learned from religion on how to construct controlling mechanisms over both ideal and material production. Like they, they learned from the great religions of the world. So be it. That does not mean that the anarchists themselves cannot feel something more than 
I'm going to live and I'm going to die and I'm a nihilist and then there's nothing bigger than this and then I'm just going to be uh, worm food, right? Like you can feel something more than that. Like there is something more to life than just that. You can feel that and you can be okay with it. So there is space within anarchism for that. And if it's kind of weird to say this about anarchism, but if you're looking to recruit more members, you probably should maybe like, again, approach it with a more open mind than that. It's one of the things that turns off not just anarchists, but really uh, a lot of people to all leftist movements is they're, they're not just anti-state religion or manufactured religion or highly constructed religion. They're anti looking at things from the non-linear positivist lens. That's the problem with the left. Um, all of these various leftist movements is they're turning off a whole host of potential converts or subscribers, whether they are socialist, communist, anarchist, whatever they want to call themselves. They're turning them off by basically saying, you can't have any of that metaphysical mumbo jumbo and, and be involved in this. We are like hard science. Well, you're not. Positivism is also highly subjective, right? It's, I don't know. Nick can probably go on further with this. But if you're looking to gain movement, removing this very, very deeply embedded human need for something bigger than me, a connection to something, whether that's nature, whether that's to the sun, whatever it is, removing that is removing a part of humanity. And that's what you're asking people to give up. Although kind of interestingly, like green anarchism a little bit and primitive anarchism for sure, they actually play to that a lot, I think. But in it's not like in a Taoist sense, clearly, but it's in sort of a spiritual connection to nature. Right. And going back to our roots, quote unquote, whatever that means, depending on who you're talking to. Like there are no more there are no more dogmatic people in the world than atheists. That's the irony. Like and I'm not like I said, no. I am picking on them in this case. Like I pick on all the other religions of the world. And yet I've met numerous atheists that are exponentially more close minded than, you know, the Catholic priests or Islamic imams. I mean, they are so fundamentally dogmatic and always on the defensive. And it's such a turnoff. Again, it's... it's Well, and again, the emphasis on positivism, et cetera, yeah. scientism and so on. So I'll play devil's advocate, I guess, like figuratively and literally in this context. But I'll say the the critique would be if you're looking for something bigger than yourself or outside of yourself or something to dictate the affairs of human beings, the anarchists would argue there's no place for that within anarchism because it's like a cop-out. Then right? the anarchists have not led one of their better men back in and his ideas on natural law. Well, well but in that case, it's human nature, right? Well, but he doesn't maybe attach a metaphysicalness to it, but he's saying, how do you define natural law? There's just this natural... But I think that's the difference, is the metaphysicalness, right? That's the difference. Because most people would argue spirituality is somehow metaphysical. You could make the scientific argument about human nature. Can you? You can try. I don't know <sighs> if you can, but you can try. So this whole... Well, this episode is going to go on forever. I don't know that I want, I want to open up this can of worms. <laughs> but I would argue that based on some of these OG anarchists that we've talked about in other episodes... Uh, backing in in particular, Kropotkin a little bit more so as well with this idea of like the natural way that things work, even though many would argue they're looking at it through empirical evidence and positivism and scientism and things along those lines. There's still this interconnectedness that I think is absent in the modern anarchist movement. I don't know if it is absent. I mean, they don't talk oh. about it in a spiritual way, but that's the key part of the movement is mutual aid and us working together and... 
but and so I, on. I think the issue is that a lot of anarchists that I've spoke to anyway feels like there's no space for that, even though it's like you say, it is probably inherent throughout anarch like anarchist circles and stuff like that. Even like that might be the case, but nobody acknowledges that that is a thing, and then also shuns that mm-hmm. spiritual aspect to people. So that's because yeah. I think that. Anarchists need to have many, probably all like socialists too, need to have different conversations about what spirituality is. Because I think so many people associate it with religion that as soon as you say spirituality, they think of God or something when like we're having a spiritual connection right now, right? But there's no, none of us have to believe in God or have a Bible or any of those things. Like I think that there are so many different, like I can go out on a run on the mountain and have a spiritual experience, but that doesn't mean that I believe in like Taoism or the way or any of that. Right. Right, right. I think that there's a lot of work to be done probably in many of these circles to deconstruct the, the damage that has been done by organized religion probably for thousands of years. And I don't know, I'm not qualified to start those conversations, (laughs) but I think it's a valuable conversation to have for sure. So that people understand. Yeah. Like, I mean like the mutualists, right. If I'm going to, make food for you and you're going to help me fix my house or whatever. Like that's a spiritual thing that right. we're taking part. Like, you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. So yes. Is there space for spirituality and anarchism? I guess my conclusion is yes, but we first have to qualify what spirituality means, I guess. You know what I mean? I think that like, I think I'll stick to what I said. I still believe that if we're anarchists and we're like, please spiritual metaphysical being tell me how to lead a revolution like no there's absolutely no space for something like that but if it's like a spiritual connection between people or like we love each other or like a spiritual connection with nature or something like yeah for sure absolutely we need more of that i think all of us do yeah. i don't know any other thoughts no that's it that's, that's all that's all i have all right we'll cut it off there i know jared has so much more to say but He's not this going episode, to. This episode is going to be too long. Jared so has conflicted views on spirituality and what that means and et cetera, which I want him to talk about, but he doesn't want to, apparently. We just don't have the time. We don't have the time. We'll do it's an only episode. been an hour. We, 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 we will do another episode. So I've already been planning this for the next future episode where we tie in some of these more spiritual ideas into our ideological and political and social and revolutionary ideals where we kind of try and synthesize these two. And so the next series, I think, where we try and tie these together is I'm going to do one of my personal favorites to explore Sufism and see how that also integrates maybe not so much into anarchism, but maybe more into like the socialist mindset. Um, uh, so that's that's kind of what we got coming up. And that's, again, that's something that's kind of like just real Real, I'm, I've been real into for a very long time. Taoism's always been a favorite of mine, but so is Sufism um, as a, as uh, ways to explore spirituality. I don't even know that I'm a spiritual person. I just like to dabble in a little bit of everything. Um, but yeah, so I don't want to steal thunder from future episodes, but we'll keep talking about this. We'll probably bring Dante back for those ones um, because these are questions that he, uh, Nick has already said it in this episode. He came to us specifically, is there room for spirituality in these other like kind of revolutionary movements, anarchism and socialism and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I want to keep exploring those. So um, that's where I'm going to leave it. I, I do have a lot more to say on this topic of implementing spirituality into revolutionary theory and those types of things. But but I don't want this to go on forever. So we will save that for a future episode that will be uh, coming out here in the next few weeks on Sufism. So Cool. Um, yeah, and like I said, we're going to go – it will probably be a series on nihilism specifically as well. 
Uh, I'm deep in the rabbit hole of that and have a lot of research that I've been doing and a lot of writing that I've been doing in that arena. So we're for sure going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to go deep for a while in that one uh, coming up pretty soon, too. Uh, all right, so we'll cut it off there. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode. You can find us online at revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Just uh, search for Revolution and Ideology, and you'll find us there. If you like what you're, we are doing, uh, you can support us on Patreon or uh, just share us with your friends. Uh, tell them about us. Share us on social media. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And I'm Dante. Later.